This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, August 20th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. An assault in Manhattan. Police got a warrant so Google would tell them which phones were in the area. Is it overstepping? Is it an appropriate use of tech to solve crimes? Cato's Julian Sanchez comments. Uh, As you understand it, this is a Manhattan district attorney getting uh, a warrant for Google phone data and using that essentially to generate a list of suspects. That's right. And in this particular case, from what we know publicly about the precise methods that were followed, um, there are actually reasons to not be as concerned about it as as one might otherwise be. Um, the concern is, you know, it's it's not clear that this is the process that's always followed as this technique is used. And this has become increasingly popular with local law enforcement. We don't have a lot of aggregate data about how much it's used by different agencies and what the rules uh, that are that are in place are. It seems like in this case, to the extent that there are uh, rules enforced that would limit uh, or, or you know uh, assuage certain civil liberties concern, there are really go- rules imposed by Google and not by uh, you know local or, or certainly federal law. Um, so this is really, in a sense, a descendant of a technique uh, that had been known as tower dumps, uh, dating back to at least 2010. Um, The first case I'm aware of where it was used was in Texas, uh, involving a group of bank robbers called the uh, Scarecrow Bandits, because they were known for uh, showing up to robberies in kind of ratty gear and big hats. Um, And uh, at the time, the technique was called a tower dump, because the idea was instead of going to a platform like Google, they would go to cell providers and say, we want... uh, essentially all the phones that connected in this window of time to the closest cell phone tower. And that would give you usually a, a pretty big number of, uh, of people in the area. And you could compare a bunch of different uh, tower locations from different robberies and say, okay, if there's a phone that connected uh, during you know four out of five of these robberies, that's perhaps not a coincidence. Now um, you say connected, that can be done passively as far as the user is concerned. This just occurs, that your phone right. connects. It, it, it makes a linkage with the cell tower, and that tells the cell tower, uh, this guy is communicating with us, even if you're not intending anything. That's right. Now, providers have different um, uh, protocols as to how long they might keep that data. If you didn't make a call, so if you made a call or sent a text, um, the fact that you were connected to that tower at that time would probably be part of a record that was... Uh, uh, maintained for a longer period of time. Um, if we're just talking about a phone that's checking in, um, every few seconds, essentially, your phone is pinging around to see if it's got connectivity. That's how you can get uh, you know, a text message or a phone call anytime. It's constantly connecting to make sure it's uh, on a cellular carrier's network. Uh, and so um, you know, many providers don't necessarily keep uh, the record of uh, for a very long periods of time, everyone who's connected, even for uh, a second, sort of passing through as they're driving, um, they're more likely to keep it if um, it's actually a record associated with a call or a text because they keep that for billing and other analytic purposes. Um, and the so cell records are, uh, uh, of course, tend to cover pretty broad areas. In an urban area, you might have a cell tower that covers you know, the radius of a block or two. Uh, In a more rural area, you might have a very large area um, covered by a single tower. Uh, And 
you know, again, depending on the location, you might have at any given time many uh, hundreds or thousands of people connected to a single tower. Um, the the interesting thing here is that um, Google has, in a sense, a lot more precise information that they're often providing location services like, you know, you think of Google Maps, but also localized search recommendations, unless you've sort of made a choice to turn this off or otherwise uh, obfuscate your location when you search, uh, you know, you search for a... a uh, a place called the Coffee Bean uh, on Google, the first result is probably going to be the closest cafe to you that has that name, even though there are quite a lot of coffee shops with that name, um, because they're providing localized results in, in an attempt to try and give people results that are relevant to them. Um, and so what that means is Google is very attractive for law enforcement uh, when they're looking for these things because, uh, one, they often have more location precision than you can get from just uh, a cell tower dump. Uh, but also, you know, they may have folks who aren't just connected to a cell tower. They may have people who have got a device that's uh, connected to Wi-Fi. And so you may have actually uh, a broader universe than you'd get going to a cell provider. Um, Google, however, also uh, seems to at least be able to enforce um, certain certain standards that may not be required by state or local law. Um, so it appears in this case, for example, uh, first, the district attorney actually procured a warrant, um, apparently because Google insists on that and sort of says they'll they'll just fight it in court if you um, if you try to obtain this information with a lesser process. But uh, you know, by the sort of letter of the law, um, this is the kind of information that often might be obtainable, uh, or at least arguably obtainable. Uh, pursuant to lesser process than a search warrant, like uh, a 2703D order, which requires essentially only a, a reasonable, articulable suspicion of uh, relevance to an investigation, um, and uh, or, you know, or even uh, perhaps a subpoena. Um, and the uh, 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 additional process Google imposes here is that um, they're also not just spitting back you know, the, the name and, uh, you know, address and, and account information of everyone who turns up in a particular geographic and, and time window. What they've been doing is sending back uh, an anonymized list of Google ideas. Say, okay, at for these different locations, uh, here's the a list of, of numbers, of sort of gibberish IDs of who we've got at you know location one at time one and location two at time two, and the police are sort of looking at those um, as as different events occur and say, okay, uh, you know we don't want information on a hundred people who were near this location at this time, um, but maybe there's five people who were at uh, you know two thirds of these locations, uh, and that's a narrower universe of people that we think um, we'll go back for a second warrant and say. We think the fact that you know this account was at all of these locations where a crime or an incident occurred um, is enough evidence uh, to support a second warrant to get more details about who that person is, um, and so to some extent that that mitigates some of the concerns people might have, obvious concerns you would have uh, about a kind of dragnet that says, "Tell us everyone who was at this location." Um, in part, you know, one of the problems there is it's sort of hard to know ex ante. Um, when you specify a time and location, what the number of hits is going to be? Is this a you know a deserted alley uh, where at that particular time you're only going to get you know maybe um, you know a mugger and their victim and a couple of passersby, um, or is this you know a, a 
a church or a synagogue or a mosque during services um, where you're going to get a whole lot of people and you're potentially going to reveal something about their, uh, you know, their personal religious activity that is unconnected to any legitimate investigative purpose. Um, so sort of ex ante, you don't know whether you're going to get, you know, five results or uh, 5,000. Um, you might you know, have suspicions if you know what, what the time and location are. Um, but formally speaking, um, this is a kind of request that could generate very few results or a massive number. Uh, and again, depending on the location and time, might yield no information of particular interest. It might just you know, tell you that uh, uh, this is a list of 100 people who are at a bus station. Um, or it might tell you something quite sensitive, that this is a list of 100 people who were at a particular religious institution or at an abortion provider uh, or at a mental health facility or um, at uh, you know, a strip club. Um, so the um, both the, the sort of scope of, of the results that are generated and the um, I guess sensitivity of the ancillary disclosure about those people's activities um, is highly variable uh, depending on the time and the place and the details of the circumstances. And so it's somewhat reassuring to, to see this sort of two-step process where you have an anonymized list of identifiers and then only when um, you actually have narrowed this down to, you know, okay, there are three people who are at all these locations that is very unlikely to be a coincidence, um, and that perhaps counts as probable cause to believe uh, that evidence of a crime will, of, 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 of crime will be uncovered by learning more information about these particular individuals. Um, but these really do appear to be Google's uh, requirements, and they're just an enormous provider with a lot of lawyers, and so they have the ability, in effect, uh, to say, you know, these are these are the rules we're going to adhere to, and if you don't want to have to. Um, sort of wrestle with us and, and our lawyers. Um, these are the processes you're going to you're going to have to adhere to, and a lot of law enforcement seem to be sort of willing to to accept that. Is this unique to Google? That is, are do other platforms seek to minimize data when they're served with a warrant before they hand it over to police? I think there's a lot of variation. Uh, we don't know a lot specifically about the location. Uh, procedures that different platforms follow, though most of the the major tech providers do have uh, uh, usually publicly available guidelines for law enforcement describing uh, the kinds of data that they will provide and, and under under what conditions and pursuant to what legal process. Um, Google uh, may be unique in, in in that they have a whole lot of location data, at least among tech platforms as opposed to cellular carriers. Um, very broadly and generally speaking, I think. Um, it's fair to say that the tech companies, meaning companies like Google and Microsoft and Yahoo, um, have been uh, more uh, tried to be more restrictive about what they turn over and more protective of privacy than uh, cell carriers have. They, as as a rule, the telecoms um, have a history that tends to make them more um, cooperative by default. Uh, with law enforcement in terms of providing uh, user tracing, that's just casting a, a very wide net, uh, painting with a broad brush. Um, I'm not sure about the extent to which other companies follow these kind of precise uh, procedures with respect to uh, this kind of anonymized masking of user IDs. I, I haven't heard of cellular providers doing anything comparable. I'm not sure about, uh, for example, Microsoft to the extent they're they're collecting comparable location data, but they're probably less attractive just because you know a lot more people are doing Google searches than Bing searches. Um, so Google just in general is likely to have a a, a wider 
uh, array of useful location data. Um, what ought to be concerning, though, is you know that's one provider, and so we shouldn't, in a sense, be counting on the the uh, vicissitudes of their uh, particular policies uh, for this, especially when it seems like in some cases it, it's. Uh, it's just not clear there are any local legal restrictions on this uh, in in the absence of a provider saying these are the these are the um, safeguards we're going to enforce before we hand over data to you. Um, I know uh, it was a local reporters found that in um, uh, Minnesota over the period of a few months in 2017, um, police had used reverse location warrants dozens of times, um, despite a local law that would at least on face, arguably um, not permit uh, a warrant to be issued for uh, the purpose of location tracking without having a named target individual. Um, so there are cases where police are doing this, where um, there are local laws that where there's at least a question. And I, I say a question because I'm not absolutely steeped in Minnesota's uh, local privacy statutes. And so I want to look closer before I say definitively, but there's at least a question uh, whether that comports with uh, local statute and certainly you know, whether or not it's in direct conflict with local statutes. Um, this is the sort of thing that you would hope uh, you know, would be regulated in the same way that we have you know, specific rules spelled out for wiretaps um, that says, all right, if you want to do this kind of monitoring or surveillance, um, there are rules that don't depend on the company and what they want to share, but that depend on uh, legal restrictions that say this is how you have to do it. So I think you know, at bare minimum, the kind of process I've described where um, there's a sort of two-step. Um, step one is you get sort of anonymized IDs, and then you can narrow it down. And step two is, all right, you know, person X was at enough of these locations that that counts as pretty good evidence that whoever that is. Um, they're probably related to the thing we're investigating, um, and then a separate warrant is acquired. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing that shouldn't depend on Google wants to do it this way. It seems like that's the kind of thing that should be embedded in law. And uh, you know, it, in this case, you have an articulable crime, and you're trying to investigate the crime. And uh, the big concern that uh, that I have, and that uh, you know, a lot of civil liberties folks have, is the idea of investigating people. And not crimes, right? Uh, and that's you know that's why I think uh, you know one of the concerns is, um, do you have a strong nexus between a particular event and uh, and the information you're seeking? So it's one thing to say, you know, there was a violent uh, fight, there was a break in, there was a robbery, there was a mugging, there was some altercation at this location. We want to identify the people involved in that. Um, you know that's that's lower on the concern scale, um, but you know again, this is an increasingly popular tool. We don't know the range of things it's used for. Uh, it's very easy to imagine, uh, you know, law enforcement having a, a let's say a more attenuated link to actual criminal conduct. Um, maybe, for example, just wanting to know who was at. Um, you know, a protest where they're worried that violent activity may have occurred, or where, uh, you know, perhaps violent there's some some crime occurred, but you're incidentally gathering information about a huge number of other people. Um, the a kind of practical illustration of this is uh, a couple of years ago in I believe Ukraine, there were public protests where people in attendance 
uh, got a few days later a text message uh, saying, essentially, the government is, wants you to be aware that we know you attended this protest, and so you know, sort of watch out. Um, and that's that's obviously a kind of chilling uh, mechanism for. Uh, monitoring people's activities at scale. Um, it's just very easy to imagine um, cases where uh, you know, the the use of this uh, to to try and link people to conduct is um, you know more concerning and and uh, more attenuated than it is in the case of there's a physical crime at a particular location um, and we want to know who was there who might have been physically committing the crime. You can imagine using it for things like well we want to uh, you know do social network profiling. We want to figure out uh, who is associating with a particular suspect, uh, and so we're going to uh, you know build networks of association that might include again uh, you know religious or political or, or uh, sexual contacts between people that become manifest through uh, comparing uh, uh, these location patterns. We know, for example, uh, NSA had probably deployed, uh, not inside the United States, a program called Co-Traveler that used these same kind of location records um, essentially to determine when people are moving together. So when they're in a car together or when they're walking down the street together and, and sort of pulling their data out of the crowd to determine these are people who are socially connected to each other, um, not necessarily in service of uh, you know, investigating a discrete crime, but for the intelligence purpose of learning something about the social network of a particular individual. You start with one target, you figure out who they're friends with or who they're associating with physically in the world, um, and then you can look at who those people are in turn associating physically in the world. Um, that's, you know, again, not about finding out who was at a crime scene. It's about uh, network profiling, um, which is obviously useful for intelligence purposes, can be useful in uh, criminal investigative purposes, but I think uh, we would be very reasonably anxious about seeing uh, that kind of technique deployed um, for that kind of purpose outside of the narrower um, context of you know who was at this crime scene. Julian Sanchez is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.